So we are in a series um, which is tied into a vision for the whole year. And the vision for the year is, is that we're becoming a garden. And a garden, of course, takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of planning so that we can grow. And last week, uh, I asked two questions. As we prepare and plan for the year, how do you want to grow? How do you anticipate to grow personally? How do, how do you anticipate to grow communally? Um, so that by the end of the year, we can say, oh, I really do see some, some life here. I really do see some, some fruit and uh, some new characters, some, some evidence that uh, God has been at work this year in my life, and not only in my life, but in, in the community around me. So I asked us to be thinking about those questions, and we're going to gather some of that information so that we can track with you at the town hall. But in our neighborhood group this last week, I, we, we talked about these two questions. And I discovered right away that I don't think I have the resources within me to answer them. Not on my own. I need to look outside of myself and to ask the people who know me best, uh, who love me the most, uh, who know the things that I struggle with, to be able to say, this is how I think God might be calling you to change. This is how I think God might be calling you to grow. And so I would invite each of you to do the same thing. Over the next week, take those two questions and to think about the people who are in your life, who know you best, who care the most about you, and to ask, how would you like to see me change? Now, if you're a husband or a wife, there's probably a list of things that are rushing to the forefront <laughs> of your mind at this point. And I would say, yeah, those are the things that God might be calling you to change. And so, uh, with that in mind, let's let's think about how we can turn over the soil of our faith, how we can prepare our hearts and our minds for God to do something within us. And let's start first by looking at John 10. John 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. And this will be a shorter, shorter uh, discussion today, but this is the word of God. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. 
just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon, demon open the eyes of the blind? That is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes? <laughs> Lord, as we come to this text and we talk about tilling the soil of our faith, would you do that for us? Would you challenge us? Would you break up the ground of whatever our beliefs are so that we can hear and see and engage the way that this community is here in this passage? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these statements called the I am statements. And in them, they have these very vivid, evocative metaphors. Uh, one of them was, I am the bread of life, right? And so bread is what that meant for the community was that God, that Jesus was the ultimate provision of God to people who were in the wilderness. And people in the wilderness are, it's everybody. Uh, the second uh, metaphor that we looked at is that he was the light of the world, which meant that, that you're to base your life on him. That he's the source of life and truth and 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 goodness. And therefore, to live a life apart from him is just not only foolish, but it can't really be done. And therefore, to base our lives on him, to center our lives on, on Jesus as the light of the world, uh, as the source of life, uh, to move towards him and, and to move out of darkness. And today he refers himself to two things, a gate and as a shepherd, and these are very distinct ideas, but they're also interrelated. And what I'd like to do today is I want to just focus on the gate. We'll focus on the shepherd next week. But because they're so inter interrelated, it's, it's helpful just to understand the entirety of the passage together. And so today we're going to look at the gate and let's ask what can we learn? How will this idea that Jesus is the gate um, break up the ground of our own faith? How will it turn it over for us today? So let's ask three questions. What is the gate? Who is the gate for? And then lastly, how do we choose? How do we choose this particular gate? So what is the gate? I'll admit that over the years, as I've looked at this passage a little bit, the idea of a gate has never really resonated for me. I'm not sure if that's because the gate is the entryway into a sheep pen and it's messy and all that kind of thing. I'm a city guy, but the idea of gate just didn't really grab hold of me. Maybe it's a little bit mechanistic. Maybe it's because the gates are inanimate, right? It's not like bread that you can literally sink your teeth into. It's not like light that you're just drawn to, to towards. Um, but the image of the gate isn't just practical information folks. The image of the gate and doors in general have tremendous meaning for us. 
doors are what? Doors are, are symbols of opportunity. Doors are symbols of opportunity. And many of us maybe move through life like life is a kind of blueprint. And there's all these doors that we can't really see, but we know metaphysically, existentially, they're there. And my job, in some sense, is to find those doors, enter the right door. And when I enter the right door, I'm going to go down the right path. And God will bless me and be proud of me and love me and all that kind of thing. That's a very common way for Christians and non-Christians to think about life. I don't know that that's a biblical way of thinking about life. In fact, I don't think that's a biblical way. But that's a common way for us to move through life when we have to make decisions. Is this the right decision? Is this the right door? Another way we think about doors is in a kind of a negative way or caution, right? We use the language of uh, going down a path or I'm, I'm taking up a habit, which was a kind of gateway to unhealth or a gateway to destruction. There's also doors that are filled with wonder. You know, the Chronicles of Narnia. What is that? It's about a group of kids in a wartime uh, setting who find a wardrobe that has a door and they open. But they realize that not only does it have a door, but it is a door. And it opens up into a whole new world, a world that promises redemption, that's in need of redemption. In which surely God is at work as lands on the moon, right? If you're familiar with that story. So doorways are, are symbols of opportunity. They're also symbols for us that we live in a world in which we need protection. They're symbols of, that we live in a world in which we need protection. I was listening to a conversation between two people, and one was a person who was an atheist, and the other was a a kind of evangelist and, and uh, um, public apologist. And the person who was the atheist said, I'm not sure why you feel the need to believe in God. I don't think you need to believe in God to lead a moral life. And he said, um, I don't believe in God and I don't live in fear of what will come next. He says, what are you afraid of? Why are you afraid to not believe in God? You know, we I think that we could be subjective, moral, reasoning, creatures as humanity and move through the world with a great degree of trust. And the apologist, the evangelist who does this for a living, by the way, um, simply asks the question, he says, so you're an atheist, you believe that you can move through the world with, without feeling a sense of danger? And the young, very smart uh, gentleman said, yes. And then the apologist said, did you lock your door last week? Did you lock the door of your apartment? And of course, the man said, yeah, I did. And what he's trying to say is, is to believe, to not believe in God doesn't, doesn't mean that we actually live without real fears. That doors for us are not just symbols, but they're realities that keep us from, from harm, that keep us from evil, that keep us from the language here of robbers and thieves. And so as we talk about this, I don't want to get into all that kind of, you know, can you live a moral life apart from God? Um, but I think the question might be worth discussing is, is not can you live a moral life apart from God, but what is a moral life apart from God? If there is no God, then there's a whole set of different moral standards which we can 
come up with and which would have evolved, right? Um, to whatever whatever culture you live in, whatever tribe you're a part of, whatever system of belief you are in, will just naturally, you will come up with a set of circumstances. You'll come up with a set of beliefs and principles of a moral life. And if you believe that Jesus is the gate, that will inform a whole other set of circumstances in moral life. That will inform the way that you and I live. So where do we see that? Jesus in verses 1 through 5 describes this well-functioning sheep pen, a sheep fold. And in this well-functioning sheep fold, he highlights the necessity and the importance of the gate. In a volatile world, doors, gates are vital. And the reason they're vital is because they're des designated entry points for safety and security, for nourishment, for community, for growth, for wonder, for freedom. So let me describe the sheepfold that he's talking about. Sheepfolds uh, in ancient times were like many fortresses. I should say many, but they were not castles, but they were secure. Sheepfolds were made out of stone, and they were over the height of a man. Uh, they were either made of stone, they were made of wood, and on top of that, they would put briars, which are kind of like agrarian barbed wire. And they did that so that they were built down into the earth and way up, up into the sky so that nobody could get over and nobody could get under. And what would get under? Wild animals, right? maybe over wild animals. But whoever was getting over was unwanted. But these were very protected spaces. Uh, they were spaces where you could put your sheep and that sheep would be free. They would be comfortable, they'd be protected. You could have them there at night. But I mean, every sheepfold, of course, there was what? There was a single gate. There was a designated point of entry. Uh, and that point of entry was for the shepherd. There's a gatekeeper there. The shepherd goes in, it's recognized by the gatekeeper. And when the shepherd goes in, he is able to tend to his particular flock. But the point we want to land here is that this is a very particular point of entry that's only for, that requires a door, I should say. This safe place, this protected place, this place of life and security and community is only access to a door. It's only access to a door. And of course, there's a higher point here. You know, in the scriptures, shepherds and sheep are often referred to or metaphors for God's relationship to his people. Uh, often, uh, it's uh, the metaphor of a, a kingly shepherd overseeing his sheep, right? And so this higher point here is that is a reference to the kingdom of God. That the sheep pen is a metaphor, an image for an eternal life, an eternal community through which you can only access through one way. There's one, only one entry. And right away, as I say that, in New York City, I can see and experience, even for myself, the ground of my faith being turned over. How can that be true? That there's only one entry point to the kingdom of God. That in all of human history, there's only one way. It should challenge all of our beliefs. It should challenge all of 
what we think about life. There's only one way. Jesus says, I am that way. I'm the way. Now, he references sort of the feelings that maybe you and I are conjuring up in, in verses 7 through 10. He says, very, very truly, I tell you. And when he says very, very truly, it's basically what that means. It's not to be questioned. It's not that you can't question. That you can base your life on this. Very, very truly. Another way to say it is, Jesus saying that I am basing my life on this. Very, very truly. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And what is he saying? Is he talking about all who came before him, all the prophets? Is he talking about Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David and so on and so forth? No. What he's talking about are false messiahs. <laughs> what he's talking about are people who have come over the gate, or excuse me, over the hedge, if you will, over the wall. And said, I'm the shepherd of these particular sheep. I will lead you out. He's talking about false messiahs before, but there's also passages in the New Testament where he's talking about false messiahs presently and into the future. But he, here he is saying, and he's addressing our fears, our concerns, our common questions. He's saying, I am the gate. Anybody else who declares to be the gate, they're thieves and robbers. They're poachers of my sheep. I was listening to uh, R.C. Sproul uh, sermon on this passage this last week, and he told a story about being in college and uh, being asked by his religion teacher in a, in a not a Christian college, asked by his religion teacher, how could you possibly, do you believe that? He believed Jesus is the only way. And he knew he was alone in that space. And he was very intimidated, he says. And he said, I have to say yes. To which this teacher, he says, just humiliated in front of the whole class. And ridiculed him. How dare you think that? How could you be so arrogant? How could you think such an exclusive idea? Uh, many of the people I love the most think the same way. I've had similar conversations. I've had conversations like that where I didn't feel humiliated. And really loved in those conversations by people who don't believe what I believe, but that's what, that was his experience. And he sat there the rest of the class, he said, and then afterward he approached the teacher and he said, let me ask you something. Do you think that you could be persuaded that Jesus could be one of the ways, one of the ways to heaven? And she said, yeah, I do think I could be persuaded to. And then he said, well, what if you're persuaded that he really is one of those ways? And then he says to you, I'm not just one. I'm the only one. How would you respond? And he said, you might feel what I'm feeling, which is that to, to, to say otherwise would be to betray. Him. But to say, yes, I do believe he's the only one is to risk being labeled a bigot, being arrogant, so on and so forth. And he says, so I'm caught in the middle. And so she said, but I don't think I can believe in a God in which he only creates one way. And Sproul, who's, this would be classic R.C. Sproul, says, well, I believe in a God who didn't need to create anyone. 
but he created one. And that way is sure. That way is sure. <clears throat> so, in a world, let me pause. There is a sense of entitlement that we have as human beings that there should be so many open opportunities for us. Because our hearts are inclined to know that if there is a God, that he must love me, that I must have some connection to him. We may push that down, we may deny it, we may ignore it as we move about our day, but when push comes to shove, we do believe, humans do believe that we're connected to something outside. But we often fail to believe all the many things in our hearts and our minds and our schedules that block us from that experience, that block us from it. And we also kind of minimize the impact of our lives in the world. That's why it's hard when I say, ask somebody around you how you need to change. Because when people give us actually really helpful feedback, we hate it. And we often turn against them. And we do the same thing to God. We do the same thing to the, our ultimate love. And so we should be amazed, just humbled, that this good and loving God would create any ways, in a sure way, a true way, in Jesus. So what did it, when we think about the way and how we should process process this to say I am the way could be the most reckless of statements. You know, anybody can stand up and say I am God. David Koresh did it when I was a teenager, and lots of people were killed. And he was he was known. He is now known forever to be a troubled man who brought troubled people to a fiery end. Right. So anybody can say that, but what did it cost Jesus to say that? It was incredibly costly. You know, in the book of Exodus, doors play a role in that story. In the book of Exodus, God said he's going to bring judgment upon Egypt, but you will be saved if you put blood on the door. And if you put blood on the door, the judgment of God, the wrath of God will pass over that door and spare that home from death. That's what happened, and in order to do that, those those families were, were liberated. They were freed. They came out of bondage. They moved into the promised land. But Jesus is saying, that blood on the door is about me. I'm the door. That blood on the door was about one day, uh, judgment would come down and power to see It was for me. It's all about me. And so when Jesus says, I am the door, I am the way, I'm the gate, he's saying, this, you see how much it cost him. And because it cost him so much, it's actually so easy for us to choose or to enter into the door. In Matthew 7, what does he say? Everyone who asks receives, one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It is a sure way. As costly as it is, it's so easy to enter in on one level. But it's not a door that's just open to you, but once it is open, it is open forever. 
in the book of Revelation, we read this to the church of Philadelphia. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. In every other system of belief, the door to something more is one that you what? Is the door that you have to create. It's the 